Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. share with us from the book of Luke. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, and it should be up on the screens as well. And for those of you who like to make notes, hopefully that's all of you, because you know Vanna preaches great sermons, you, you need to make notes. And you can pick a title if you kind of enjoy fun and an atmosphere. You can call it Let the Party Begin. Or perhaps you more of the relational type, you can go with the Father's Delight. You know, why can you only have one term sermon title? It, just You pick one, the one you like the most. And this evening, what we're just going to do is we're literally just going to read through Luke chapter 15. And as we do that, allow hopefully the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to transform us, because that's what His Word does. It shines a spotlight on where we're at, and it, it leads us to where we should be. And before we do that, I'm going to ask if we can just close our eyes again. I'd love to pray together this evening. Lord Jesus, this evening we, just as we've already done, just through our song, our singing, through the repentance, Lord, even we just want to come and just say that, Jesus, you are so worthy, Lord. Lord, we so thankful that we get to gather today in your name, that we get to lift you up, Jesus, that we get to spend time reading your word, the word that you gave to teach us, to equip us, to lead us, to form us. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would breathe over that word and cause it to transform our hearts, Lord. We want to grow closer to you. We want to know you more, Lord Jesus. And as we walk out of this place later this evening, Lord, we want to know you more and have grown closer to you, but also to reflect you better to a dying and broken world out there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I wonder what that has to say about SARS today, if other sinners are also notorious sinners. Reading from the New Living Translation this evening, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. We can almost stop the sermon right there and, and just spend a couple of moments just on that one phrase, that one verse, that one sentence and just thinking in my life and in your life, when was the last time notorious sinners, not just ordinary sinners, the ones where the whole town, everyone knows that's the bad guy in town. I don't know, Secunda people, maybe you here tonight and that's you. When you walk in, everyone sort of takes a half step back or their eyes stretch or you walk into a room and suddenly people stop gossiping or whispering because they know the stories about you. And yet there was something about Jesus' life that they often came to listen to Him. I read that and every time I read that I'm so convicted about the simple question, do I live my life in such a way that notorious sinners, the bad people in Pretoria, the people that I know perhaps are the pimps and the prostitutes, the drug dealers, the thieves, the murderers, do I live my life in such a way that when they need direction in their life that they would at least come and ask me? Because that's how Jesus did. And right at the start of, of this passage in Luke chapter 15, we've got this one verse that kind of sort of hits you in the face a little bit. What's Vanner's quote? Like fireballs, you know. 
You guys need to watch more Survivor. Eh? You guys know he wasn't Survivor until recently. Spoiler alert. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking Vanner builds a great bus. But Jesus builds a great church. And here's Jesus and... And he is not intimidated. He's not afraid by these notorious sinners. I want to just throw this out there. And I, I just love how we started this service. But I so often find myself having to check my, my heart around this. How would you feel this evening? Honest, just between you and God, you're not answering anyone else. You walk in this back door at church and you see Secunda's most notorious sinners. The guy you know who's going to hang out at the casino. The guy who's notorious for the way in which he conducts himself socially. You see that person sitting in church. The most feared from a crime perspective person. And you see them sitting in church. What is your first reaction going to be? Is your first reaction, yes, he's finally here. She's finally come. The prostitute that's on the street corner that I drive past on the way from home every work. She's finally here. Or is it sort of glad she's here, but I'm just going to sit on the other side of the aisle tonight. And yet Jesus lived his wife in such a way that he was never intimidated by the sinfulness of people around him. As a matter of fact, they were drawn to him. There was something about his life. There was an open door. And this is where this conversation becomes so, so interesting. And you're going to see as we read Luke chapter 15, you're probably going to realize we're going to look at three specific stories in Luke chapter 15, which are repetitions of the same story. And as we read them, you might most likely will recognize at least one, if not two or three. You've heard them before. I wonder how often you've heard them all three as sort of a snowball from the first story into the second story into the third story. It's exactly what it is. It's Jesus telling the same story and he's repeating it three times. Not only is he repeating it three times, but every time he's just escalating the story just a little bit. Just bringing it a little bit closer because he's speaking to a very specific group of people. And we see that here in the next verse. This, what is this? This, the notorious sinners that often came to Jesus, made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So we have a situation here, and it's so important, and I want to encourage you every single time when you read Scripture, read a verse, read two verses, zoom in and do study and kind of figure out what that verse is. But it's so important that you just step back just a little bit and just ask yourself, what's the story here? Sometimes we so get stuck into a verse that we actually miss everything it means. Do you know it's, imp- it's possible to know a verse so well, to read it so well, but not have a clue what it says? I can give you a great example. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Now you're all nervous. You can. Scripture says so. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We can overcome. We can be victorious. And I'm sure there's an application for all of that. But it's important that we realize what is Paul actually saying there. What is the verse just before that and just after that? What is the context? He says, I know how to struggle in life. I know how not to have anything. I know how to be poor and destitute. And I can do all of that through Christ who strengthens me. Yet perhaps most of us, when we write it on a, on a verse, it's a memory verse for the day, we're not reading it with that as a background. Am I right? Let's be honest with ourselves. We're reading that with, I'm going to overcome. I'm going to win. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me. In all of these things, and sometimes we miss just the verse before that, that 
helps us to color in the picture a little bit. So I want to encourage you, do that. Dig into the word, dig into the verse, but step back and just say, what is the story? So what is the story as we head into these three verses? The story is Jesus is having a conversation with a group of religious people who are upset with him. And they're upset with him around a very specific thing. They're upset that he is not holy, is the word. That he is not keeping himself pure. That he is coming, in a sense, to church, and he's not intimidated. He's not kind of pushing away the sinfulness. As a matter of fact, it seems like he's drawing the sinfulness to him. And they're coming, they're upset. You see, they grew up with a mindset that to be holy, to be righteous, to be pure, to live a godly lifestyle is so important. And as we do that, we should be separating ourselves from what is ungodly, what is unholy. And that was sort of an interpretation of what they read from the writings in the Old Testament, from Moses' writings. It came naturally to them, and here came someone who was doing it different, who, who wasn't drawing a line and say, dirty people that side, clean people this side. As a matter of fact, he was deliberately stepping over, and he was eating with the notorious sinners. He was eating with those that the Pharisees thought, we cannot go close to them. And that's the context, and it's so important we get that. If we miss that context, we miss the meaning of all three of these stories that Jesus is about to tell them. So that's the context. That's the story. So Jesus told them this story. Once again, it's just important that we read accurately. This isn't something that actually happened. This isn't a factual account. It's a parable. It's a story. Jesus is now, it's, an, it's a factual account. Jesus is happening. But the stories he's about to tell, the three stories are illustrations, are examples. So hypothesizing in a sense. And here comes Jesus. He's speaking to these Pharisees who are upset with him. And what does he say to them? He told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Let me just quickly put an asterisk there and just sidetrack myself very quickly. For those of us here who are leaders, church leaders, life leaders, whatever type of leader you are in, whatever space, such an important lesson we can learn here from this illustration. If you want to lead well, you need to know who's meant to be in the room. This man could only know that one was missing because he knew he had a hundred sheep. He didn't know he had around about a hundred, maybe a hundred and two, maybe ninety-seven. I don't quite know because he would never have known if one was missing. If we really want to lead well, we need to know exactly who is meant to be in the room because that's the only way we can find out who's not in the room. You see, tomorrow morning, after the meeting, whatever it was, if there was somebody who was meant to be in the room, we need to follow up as good leaders with those people. And If we don't know if they were meant to be there, it's impossible to follow up with them. He had a hundred sheep, one got lost. What will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. So what Jesus is starting here is he's starting with a, a society. Obviously, there's quite an agrarian society. They do a lot of agriculture, and yet they're Pharisees. They're not farmers. They are students of religious law. They work in sort of a religious vocation. How does he start? He starts by telling them an example that they can relate to. 
They all know of the farmer. They can all celebrate with the farmer. They all know of an account of somebody out there who's lost something, and, and in a sense they can associate with them, but it's not them directly. That's where Jesus starts the story, and then he says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And you can almost see when Jesus tells the story to this group of Pharisees, they're nodding and, yeah, we, we get what you're saying. Especially when they talk, when he starts talking about the shepherd and he's, or the farmer and he's lost his sheep and he went and fed, yeah, yeah, obviously he's going to go and fetch him. You can sort of see them nodding their heads as Jesus tells them the story. And then he says, there's joy in heaven, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And you can see probably some of them saying, oh, that, that makes sense, I get that, and, some of them are a little bit, mm, I'm going to have to go and think about that. Jesus is just putting it out there, just a, a story that we can associate with. That's the first story he tells and a story many of us have heard many times. And yet he doesn't leave it there. Immediately he goes on to the second story. So he's created this picture of a lost sheep that was found and there was celebration when we found the sheep. And we had a big party because the sheep was found. We can celebrate with that. And then, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? I don't know if you guys present marriage preparation and marriage enrichment here, but there's a great method there, guys, if you want your house cleaned. <laughs> Just kidding, in case you missed that. So now he brings it a little bit, a little bit closer because now he's talking about money. It, it was sheep we can associate with, but the Pharisees, they understand money. If you read the next chapter, Luke chapter 16, it, explicitly Jesus speaks to them about their money. And many of them are upset with him, because, it says, because they loved their money, the word says. But here's a woman, she's got 10 silver coins, she loses one. Once she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And you begin to see those Pharisees nodding their head again. You can see, okay, maybe Jesus has a bit of a point here. Remember, they're upset with him because he's spending time with the sinners. So he tells them these two stories. He tells them the story of the lost coin, of the lost sheep, which they can sort of associate with because they know a farmer who might have lost a sheep. And then the lost coin, and they can associate with that because they love their money. And if they've lost their money, they're going to turn up the whole house until they find their money. And immediately they can relate. And okay, I, we get that just a little bit. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there. He uses those two stories as just a little bit of a background. And once again, we, it's so important that we read the whole thought because the third story is one which many of us have heard many times and heard, I believe, rightly preached many times. But it's just so much, the depth is so much more of understanding helps us so much more if we just see in the light of the first two in light of the specific conversation. Pharisees are upset with Jesus. He's spending time with sinners. They're expecting him to distance himself from the sinners. He's not doing that. And they come complaining. He talks to them about a sheep that gets lost. He talks to them about a coin that gets lost and a celebration. 
And then he takes the ratchet and he ratchets it up even more. And he says, well, let's talk about people. To illustrate the point further, I love how this translation just highlights that this is a conversation that's continuing to my mind. That's an incredibly rich translation of the word and, which in most of your translations, it'll just be and, because in the Greek, it was just and. It's so important when you read the translation that you're reading, I'm not sure what translation you read, that you understand your translation. Not just that you understand the language, maybe, maybe just say something about that very quickly. I'm utterly convinced I wasn't there. Haven't time traveled yet. We'll get the DVD one day in heaven just to confirm if I'm right or wrong. But I think when Jesus was walking around the Sea of Galilee, when he was talking to fishermen, to ordinary men, and to ordinary women, he was using ordinary language. I don't think he was standing there speaking in the most pure, hardest to understand language that he could come up with. He was speaking a language called Aramaic, which is sort of a derivative of Hebrew. So the Old Testament was all written in Hebrew, and most of the New Testament was written in Greek. And it's important that we get that as well, that the Bible that you are reading today, unless you're sitting there with a Greek New Testament, you are reading a translation of a translation. Because the words that Jesus spoke, he spoke in Aramaic. It was written down for us in Greek, and that's been translated for us into the English or Afrikaans or whichever language Bible you are reading. I think what I'm trying to say is when you find a Bible to study, find one that you understand the English. Don't find one that you get stuck with the English, because when Jesus, it's like this weird thing sometimes that we think, you know, the Bible that has the oldest 16 whatever hundred years ago language is the most accurate and the rightest Bible because it's the hardest to understand. And yet I think that misses the whole message of God of heaven coming to dwell amongst men so we can see who he is. Find a language, a Bible with a translation that you understand. Don't get stuck with a language that gets used because Jesus didn't use those words anyway. It's a translation. And then also know what type of translation it is. There are two main thrusts of translation. There's one type of translation which we call complete equivalent translations. And what they try and do there is they take the original language, whether it's the Hebrew or the Greek, and they try and translate word for word as accurately as possible. That makes it sometimes a little bit harder to read because we're trying to stick, stay true to the, the original wording that is used. And those are great for study purposes. If you really want to dig into the word and doctrine and understand, you need a Bible like that. You need a Bible that's as close to the original as possible. Ideally, you should do it in Greek, but you can't do it in Greek, most of us. So we do it in English, and you want to do it in that sense, in a word-for-word -word accurate translation. The other methodology approach to translation is what we would call dynamic equivalence. So the one would be word-for-word, -word, and dynamic equivalence you can summarize as thought-for-thought -thought translation. What we have here is a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So what we're doing here is we're taking a thought and we're translating that thought into the appropriate English, which makes it much more readable because we don't get stuck with words that don't seem to fit or whatever. But there's a risk to that, and that risk is that means because we're translating a thought, there's an interpretation involved in the translation. Does that make sense? We're not reading the raw words, we're reading someone's interpretation of the words, which often is very accurate, but this is probably not the best for a pure study Bible, 
because we're studying somebody's interpretation more than we're studying the original wording. For example, and in this translation, which is a thought for thought, gets translated or rendered to illustrate this point further. <laughs> That's a broad translation of the word and. Okay, anyway, that was just as a side note for you guys doing Bible study. So to illustrate this point further, Jesus told them once again this story, a parable. He's saying, imagine with me, if you will, a moment where we have a man who has two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. My father was in hospital probably about a, six weeks ago with a quadruple heart bypass surgery, which is quite a big operation, but medical science is just amazing nowadays. He's totally fine, and he's already hunting again somewhere. But can you imagine me walking into the hospital room, or perhaps the day before he goes in, I go knock on his door, I say, phone him, listen, Dad, can I come visit quickly? We need to chat. Yeah, sure, you're going to the hospital tomorrow. Okay, let me come in tonight quickly. Dad, can we just talk about... Um, can we talk about your estate, <laughs> your will? I'm not sure how this operation is going to go. I hope it goes really well. Um, but in case it does go, if it, if it goes really badly, we probably don't need to have this conversation. But if it goes really well, then can we just talk about what's going to happen to your stuff anyway um, when you die? But actually, it's, I don't want to talk about what happens when you die. I don't just want to give it to me now. That's an awkward conversation. I don't know if it would be awkward for you. That would be a really awkward conversation for me to have with my dad. I've searched sort of all the commentaries, everyone to try and see, was this sort of a, a common conversation to have in those times? And, and no one sort of says anything about it, which makes me think this is a weird conversation. So already you're thinking, and I want you for just a moment to put yourself in the place of the Pharisee listening to Jesus. He's illustrating a point here. He's creating three pictures. The first one was a sheep that got lost. The second one is a coin that gets lost. And now he's trying to create this picture about people and immediately we relate differently and the Pharisees relate differently. And I can imagine Jesus says to this, the boy goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want what I might get one day when you die. I want it now. And you can imagine the Pharisees looking at each other in shock. Like, what? <laughs> what kind of Jewish boy is this? This Jewish boy, he's dishonoring his dad. We don't do that. There's no way his dad is just going to whack him upside their head right now and the boy is going to wake up outside the house a couple of days later. We don't do this. And yet Jesus says, so his father agreed. The dad says yes. And already the kind of, the Pharisees are like, whoa, that's not what we expected. The father wasn't meant to agree to this ridiculous request, but his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And you can imagine again these Pharisees going, hey, no, no, bad move, shaking their heads. This should not be happening. This boy is dishonoring his dad. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. Just a reminder quickly, this isn't an event that actually happened. Jesus is telling a story, and the story escalates now. So the boy goes, he wastes all his money. The money's finished, great famine hits the land. Famine sweeps over the land, he began to starve. So he persuaded the local farmer to hire him 
and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of religious Pharisees. So important we get this. He's painting the picture. This is the worst situation a Jewish boy can find himself. There is nothing worse that you can add on to the story. He is hungry. He has wasted all his dad's money. He shouldn't have taken the money. He took the money. He left the dad. He wasted this money. We're going to see a little bit later. The implication is he wasted it in wild living there. Los Geleve. He wasted it in prostitutes and drinking and whatnot. Now he's amongst pigs. Jewish boys don't do pigs. He's feeding the pigs. He just wants to eat the pigs' food, and no one is giving him any. There is no deeper problem, no worse situation in a religious law that the Pharisees can think of for any Jewish person to be than where this boy is. That's what Jesus is saying here. Here is the guy who has messed up the most. You cannot, in Jewish law, do worse than this boy has done. You cannot be further from your father's will, from your father's heart, than this boy is. You cannot do anything wrong, more wrong. Jesus kind of, he's taken this to the absolute extreme in Jewish culture. And you can see the Jewish, you can imagine if you will, the, the Pharisees sitting there shaking their heads saying, this boy has messed up. He has messed up. Totally. There's no more messing up to add on to the mess up that he's done. The mess up is finished. It's complete. That's where this Jewish boy is. That Jesus, once again, an illustration that he is giving. When he finally came to his senses. I love that. He finally came to his senses. Some of your more word-for-word -word translations, they would say when he finally came to himself. I love that translation. When I read that, and maybe I'm reading a little bit into the scriptures when I read that, I read that there's this boy, and he's blaming his brother. He's blaming the girl or whatever. He's blaming the casino he was at because the casino was rigged. And then he's blaming his dad. My dad should have all my dad's fault. And he's blaming everyone else, and eventually he comes to himself. And he realizes, maybe I should stop blaming everyone else. And let me just maybe for a moment point the finger at myself. And he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. So I will go home to my father and say, Father, beautiful repentance, watch this. I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. This boy comes to repentance. He comes to the place of realizing there's things in my own heart that is wrong. I can't blame everyone else for where I am at my circumstance. It's my doing. I need to own it. But hey, I've got a dad who's got a farm and maybe I can just go and live with him because the servants in my father's house, they're living better than I'm living. Maybe, just maybe, my dad will at least take me on as a servant. So he returned home to his father. Why he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Once again, we've just heard two stories before this. The one story, there was a hundred sheep, one got lost, and what happened? The farmer went looking for the one. There were ten coins, one got lost, the woman went looking for the one. What is the implication here? The boy got lost, perhaps the father didn't physically in this story go to the foreign land to fetch his son, but his heart is looking. 
In my mind, I, I think if Jesus was to tell the story today, there'd be CCTV camera up at the gate of the farm, and there'd be a little SMS connector key. Every time that there was movement, the SMS would go on the farm. Dad is sitting on the, kind of he's working in the lands, or he's sitting on the stoop, and he's all the time, kind of he's talking, but he's distracted. His eyes are just on the horizon all the time. Is there maybe a little bit of a dust cloud? Every now and again, he gets an SMS on his phone. He's like, oh, there's movement at the gate. Maybe today is the day. Maybe, just maybe, today is the day he's coming back. Because his heart is where the farmer was. His heart is where the woman was. His heart is looking. Something has got lost. Something is out of place and it needs to be back. His father saw him coming. And you can imagine the Pharisees, just for a moment, his father saw him coming and he took out his shambok. <laughs> his father saw him coming and his father was about to let rip. His father saw him coming and his father was going to let him know how much he'd messed up. His father had heard the stories. His father knew it was wasted. His father knew he was living amongst the pigs. His dad was going to let this boy understand what he'd done wrong. His father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. You can imagine in this moment all the Pharisees are, whoa, unexpected twist. Did not see that coming. Like Survivor Thursday night. Did not see that coming. <laughs> Unexpected twist. This is not the meant to be the father's response. The father is not meant to be filled with love and compassion. And a Middle Eastern older man is not meant to be picking up his legs, picking up his, his dress thing and running, exposing his ankles, exposing his legs. They don't do that. It's the most undignified thing that a Middle Eastern elderly man can do. And all the Pharisees are like, no, no, no. This is the wrong response. This is not what the father should do. He ran to his son embraced him full of the pigsty, pig muck, wherever else he's been, puts his arms around him and he kisses him. He's not meant to do that. If he's going to come near him, first you need to go to the ritual cleansing process. You need to be washed and cleansed, spend time outside the camp, the whole process, go to the priest. But no, the father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, draws him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. It all speaks about identity. Sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost but now is found. So the party began. This evening, I wanted to share with us around, let the party begin. I wonder if we are in a place where we are saying, Jesus, let the party begin in my, life, in my house, in my life, in my family, in my environment, in our church. Can there be a party here every single time we gather together? Not just because people who were just sort of just drifting away from Jesus came again, but the most notorious people furthest from God with the worst track record ever, who'd messed up more than we can imagine anyone messing up. Somehow, by the grace of God, came back and the party began. There was a celebration in heaven. I'm almost done. Two more passages. I know our time is really short. Romans 8, 
Just to emphasize this point, the passage once again we know really, really well. Paul writes to this church in Rome and he says, I am convinced that nothing, I want you to see the absolute conviction in the language that Paul uses here. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet somehow, second part of our message, somehow sometimes we step into that thing where we think what I have done now has separated me from the Father's love. And somehow we begin to believe that lie. I want you just for a moment to think. I know it's a story. I know it's sort of an illustration. But that boy in the pigsty, if he had known his father's response, I think he would have come back a lot sooner. If he knew his dad had had the CCTV camera installed, if he knew his dad was just watching every day for the dust cloud on the horizon, the moment it got just a little bit tricky, he probably would have said, why did not I just go home? And yet somehow he believed a lie in his heart that he wasn't worthy back home. He wasn't worthy back home. The first thing I want us to hear this evening is let us have a heart that always celebrates the one who wants to come back home. The second one is when you begin to step away, don't wait until you're lying at the bottom of the pig's sty and everything is gone before you come back. God's waiting for you now. There is nothing that can separate you. I'm going to read that again, this passage I just read, because I want you to hear how completely exhaustive it is. As I read this, li this list, I want you to think of something that is excluded from this list that Paul gives. He is as deliberate as he possibly could be to include every single thing that you can ever encounter or experience. I can't think of something that is excluded when he says, death nor life. Angels nor demons, fears for today, worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, watch this, nothing in all creation, just in case I've missed something. <laughs> nothing in all creation. Don't ever buy your lie that whatever you, or the devil's lie, that whatever you have done, is greater or stronger than Jesus' love for you. Nothing in all of creation. Maybe you need to know that where you are now. Maybe you need to just file that for where you might find yourself three months or three years from now. Just beginning to take that step away and just hear this voice of the Father saying, I'm waiting for you to come back. Come back straight away. Make a U-turn. You don't have to go a thousand kilometers in the wrong direction because of pride. <laughs> Repentance. The quicker we repent, it's a sign of our maturity. The moment I realize I'm on the wrong road, let me make a U-turn straight away and come back to God. The very last bit, and then I close with this. Back to Luke 15. Meanwhile, the older son. So Jesus has just told this to the Pharisees, and I think he's made his point to the Pharisees. Do you guys agree? Except not Jesus. Sometimes Jesus... He's got a way of exposing something in our heart and in the most loving, beautiful way so that he may heal us. He just drives the knife in a little bit. And he wants to make the Pharisees know that something in their heart 
needs to change. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his return. The older brother was angry. Wouldn't go in. Who's Jesus speaking to here? A bunch of Pharisees who are upset because Jesus is spending time with sinners. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back, what is the son of yours? Not my brother. <laughs> the son of yours. I, I'm not, I've distanced myself from him. After squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son. This is what he's saying to the Pharisees. You have always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. You've always had free access to the fridge. The only reason you didn't have milk or water, whatever was in the fridge, is because you didn't take it. It was always there for you. But we had to celebrate this happy day. Your brother was dead, has come back to life. He was lost. But now he is found. The Father's delight. The third thing I'd love for us to hear this evening is let's always examine our hearts and let's trust the Holy Spirit to pour the grace on us that we would never find ourselves in that place where we removed ourselves from the Father's delight. The amazing thing is this boy, the first son, came back wanting to be a slave and received back as a son. The son who had always been a son was living as a slave. Let's trust God that we would never live as slaves as sons in his house. Know that we have freedom because we already have freedom in his house. Let's celebrate every single one who comes back. There is more than enough. If you need the fatted go for a party with your friends, go and ask the father. He wants to give it to you. And don't let that be a reason not to celebrate when the brother comes back. No matter where he's been, the worst of the worst of the worst, the notorious sinners, Jesus wasn't intimidated by them. My prayer is that your life would be lived in such a way that the notorious sinners around you would know that your door is always open. If they need advice, if they want to hear something, if they need direction in their life, whether they're going to follow it or not is a different question, but they're at least going to come and ask you. There's going to be a bridge between you and the brokenness of the world, inviting them to step closer to Jesus.